Welcome to this episode of Planting Seeds. I'm Keith Jones, the preaching minister of Calera Church of Christ, and I've prepared a short message from Scripture that's intended to be the planting of a seed that, if cultivated, will in time produce fruit in the lives of the listeners. Now, let's get started. Shine upon you and be gracious and give you peace. In this episode, we'll continue our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have a Bible, follow along while I read, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. In this chapter, Paul's dealing with a brand new issue. We observed in chapter 7 that Paul had received a list of questions from the Corinthians, and he has begun to answer them. The first one had to do with physical relationships with women, and this one has to do with food sacrificed to idols. Paul is stating the problem here at the beginning of chapter 8, but he's not going to provide a full resolution with his answer until the end of chapter 10. It's going to take him three chapters to get through this, and in between, he's going to lay groundwork for his answer. He's going to talk about love. He's going to make a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He's going to talk about conscience and rights and idolatry, and all of this is going to go into his answer about whether or not someone should eat meat that's sacrificed to an idol. Remember, Paul has said that the Corinthians lack spiritual knowledge, so he's going to take the time to break this decision down into component parts as a way of showing them how they should make better judgments and better decisions about whether to do something or not. He's doing this instead of just telling them yes or no. That would be a lot simpler, but they wouldn't necessarily know how to make other decisions in the future. As Paul begins his answer, he basically says, people who think they know everything never do. Paul reminds them that everyone has some level of knowledge, but just possessing knowledge does not mean that you have the wisdom to know how to apply it. 
He says, just knowing things really doesn't mean anything. And by extension, he's letting us know that our eternal life is not accomplished by knowing a lot of things about Jesus, being able to pass a written test on facts that deal with Christianity. He says, it really doesn't matter what you know unless you are known by God. That may remind you of a passage in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, where Jesus himself says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This will evidently be a very sobering experience for many people who have a knowledge of God, but are not known by God. Paul says that God knowing us comes from our capacity to love others, to be sensitive to their needs and be willing to do what's in their best interest rather than demanding what we want, even if our knowledge tells us it's okay. So Paul begins by saying, whatever the solution to this problem is, it's going to start and finish as an outgrowth of the love that God has called you to have toward one another. And then he continues to say that this God, by whom we want to be known, he is one God. And here he seems to be referencing Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, and maybe other places where Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Paul says, this God, who is the one and only God, this God is our Father for whom we exist. Our whole purpose for being here is to be devoted to Him. And Paul goes on to say that we have one Lord, one person whom we should follow unconditionally, and that is Jesus, and it is through whom we have our very existence. This idea of us existing through Jesus has been brought out in other passages in the New Testament as well. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Apostle Paul, writing to a different church in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 16, says, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul's letting these Corinthian Christians know that if you want to make a good godly decision, you need to acknowledge that there is only one God, and he has given us his Son as our Lord, whom we should follow, because we wouldn't even exist without him. Specifically, as it applies to this question of meat sacrificed to idols, he goes on to make the point that since there is only one God, these so-called idols really don't have any power. They aren't gods at all. They're just pieces of stone or metal. And this is all part of the knowledge that goes into making a good spiritual decision. 
We should never want to make a decision that impacts the church based on our own desires, especially our physical desires, but rather understand that God has put Jesus in charge over the church, and we're obligated to follow his teaching and his example in whatever lies before us. So he's mentioned that love plays a role in the decision, that the supremacy of God and his son Jesus play a role in our decision. And then he goes on to add another component that we've got to consider when we're trying to exercise spiritual wisdom. He talks about things being a matter of conscience. Our conscience is kind of an internal compass. Some people in our day will even say, let your conscience be your guide. The problem is not everyone's compass is calibrated toward true north. So following that compass can get you lost. Or if you're not sure how to use the compass, you can end up off of the path that you're supposed to be on. And then for many Christians, they have a tendency to confuse their conscience with the Holy Spirit. And those aren't the same thing. Just because I have a feeling or an urge about something doesn't mean that the Spirit of God is pushing me that way. It could be that my conscience is weak, like some of the brothers here in Corinth, and hasn't been developed and trained by the Spirit because I haven't allowed that, and my conscience is actually leading me in the opposite direction that God wants me to go. The Spirit may actually be pulling against our conscience, and that's why we're feeling some internal conflict. So Paul says this idea of conscience and people being convinced that they're doing the right thing has to be taken into account when you're making a decision for the church because not everyone's conscience has been calibrated the same, and not everyone's on the same level in that regard. So Paul lets us know here and in other places that sometimes we need to make concessions to our weaker brother so that we don't cause them to stumble. Now, I do think it's important to say here that Paul's not saying that we should avoid doing things that make you think I have sinned. This is not an excuse for people with small minds and poorly educated consciences to prevent the rest of the church from doing anything. In some churches, people will try to enforce rules and restrictions that have nothing to do with the gospel, and they will claim it's necessary so that we don't cause a weaker brother to stumble. But in reality, what they're saying is, I think when you do it, you're sinning, and you shouldn't cause me to think you're sinning. That's not what Paul's talking about here. People who are thinking like that are in no danger of being led astray. Paul is talking about the people who can actively be led away from their faith by our actions. Those folks are quite sure of their correctness. Paul is dealing with a different case entirely. For some Corinthians, eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol triggered a response to imagine that there actually were other gods or that they should be worshiping other gods. It sent them back to a different time in their experience where they were devoted to a multitude of gods. Paul said there's only one God, and if we do anything that causes people to question that or to pursue other gods, we've created a stumbling block for them. It's hard for us to imagine because we didn't grow up in this kind of culture. But what Paul is describing here is very much akin to taking an alcoholic to a bar and trying to convince them that one drink's not that bad. It takes them back again to a place where they're being held captive by something that was keeping them away from God earlier in their lives. And so Paul says, you never want to be the reason that someone turns back to the thing that had them enslaved, that kept them away from God. 
you don't want to cause one of these with a weak conscience to stumble. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 18, that it's better for you to have a rope tied around your neck with a millstone on the end and thrown into the ocean than to cause someone to stumble. We never want to be the reason that someone becomes enslaved again to something that Jesus freed them from. Paul says that pain inflicted on a brother is pain that is inflicted on the church. And pain inflicted on the church is pain that's inflicted on Jesus. We sin against Jesus when we cause one of his little ones to stumble. Paul will go on from here in chapters 9 and 10 talking about surrendering our rights and and idolatry to finish out his explanation. But I want to offer a few observations just here on chapter 8. One, this teaching is not an excuse to blame others for our sin or a way to manipulate others so that we get our way. Too many churches and church leaders have used this passage just that way as a way of manipulation, and there's no place for that within the body of Christ. Also, implied in this teaching is the idea that our consciences can be strengthened. If you have a weaker conscience, and some have a stronger conscience, those with a weak conscience, can have it strengthened. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. As we learn and grow, we can trust our conscience more, but only after our conscience is attuned to the will of God. Also, when we read this passage, we tend to focus on identifying who the weaker brother is, always with the assumption that we are the stronger brother. Assuming that in every case that we're the stronger one and someone else is weak or they would agree with us, is a bit arrogant and actually goes against the teaching of Paul in this letter. It seems to me in chapter 8, what Paul's encouraging all of us to do is to realize that it's time for some of us to show others what humility, love, compassion look like in the practice of the church, to realize that just because we know something which we have freedom in Christ to do doesn't mean that we should always do it if it's going to hinder the development of faith in others. Paul doesn't want us to destroy our brothers with our knowledge. He wants us to step up and be the stronger brother. Thank you for listening. You can find more of these messages on our website, calirachurchofchrist.org, or subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Twitter.